from Local 12 Sports. It's the Skinny Podcast. Now, here's Richard Skinner. Welcome into the Skinny Podcast. It's the weekly potpourri edition. I'm Richard Skinner, Local12.com, digital sports columnist and editor. With Rick Roaring, as always, it's presented by Blake, the attorney, Maislin. And no, Rick and I will not walk away from this podcast after six seconds of questioning about our contract status. Is that correct? Uh, well, you speak for yourself, please. I, I didn't make any commitments beforehand. All right. Well, if you get up and walk away, I will call you the Mike Tomlin of this podcast. Uh, that, that probably is fair. Skinny, we don't have as much to get to this week with the NFL kind of winding down here. The Bengals are done and college football is done. So we're going to start this show with college basketball. And we, we had an interesting night of college basketball action locally here on Tuesday night, the night before we're recording this on Wednesday morning. We'll start with Cincinnati because uh, they just had a wild finish at Fifth Third Arena. They lost another close one, 62-59 at Baylor over the weekend. And then they took down number 19 TCU in overtime on Tuesday, 81-77. The Bearcats will host Oklahoma on Saturday at 1 p.m. And uh, Skinny, before we even get to the game, let me just start with this. Is it okay to court storm when you beat the number 19 team in the country? Um. No, it, it is not, especially when uh, last I checked, you do have some national championship banners and final four banners hanging up in your arena. Do you not? I believe they do. They still, ref, still do reference those. Yes. And they should. I mean, it's part of your history. It's kind of like the time when Indiana beat a number one ranked Kentucky in Indiana, which was, I thought, at one point of blue blood, although it's clearly not any longer when it stormed the court after it went over Kentucky. You recall that one? I do, although I, I would say Kentucky is probably a little bit bigger of a deal than number 19 TCU. I would give you that, but uh, I, I fans should be feeling a little bit giddy about this team, and, and they have they have exceeded my expectations at this point, to be honest with you. I thought it was an easy, easy chance that they would start this thing 0-6, and, and, and truth be told, they could easily be 4-0. You could also argue to me they could have lost last night and been 1-3, um, but uh, they, they played really, really well. Yeah, I guess that that is kind of the uh, the jump off point for the conversation with this UC basketball team. Is it that, OK, they found a way to win a couple of these Big 12 games and at least be in the end of game situations like the Texas game, even where it's it's back and forth. They have a chance to win that they could theoretically be undefeated if the ball bounces a different way a few times for them. Or are you looking at them and saying, how do you, you should have won these games easier than that? You're missing free throws at the end of games. You're shooting so terribly from the free throw line, making silly mistakes at end of games. Uh, where, where do you come out on all of that? Yeah, I just think the margin for error from a talent standpoint is, is not very big. So I think, you know, that 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 uh, makes those situations paramount. Now, you need to handle them better. Um, you know, it is called a free throw for a reason. Uh, nobody's guarding you. And it's always frustrating when, um, you know, supposedly good shooters can't knock down a, a shot being unguarded from 15 feet away. Um, you know, you don't need to make a hundred percent of them, but I think 75 to 80% probably at the college level is a good number. Um, a guy, especially for guys who are pretty good shooters from, from distance. So, yeah, I, I just think the margin for error isn't that big. Um, you know, at, at the same time, uh, I think it does show, I mean, they've been literally competitive in all four games and they've all four been ranked teams. So, um, to me that, that, that tells me something that, you know, I don't know if they're going to pop many of these ranked teams on the road. They did pop BYU, obviously. I just don't think there's going to be many of those. So that does make those home opportunities paramount to get. They've lost one of those, the Texas game, and now they've gotten one in the TCU game and get another chance with, with Oklahoma and then have to go to Kansas. I I, I really – I'm, I'm impressed with what they've done because I, I still don't know if they're going to get enough – of these quad one wins to get them into the NCAA tournament conversation. Although in most bracketologies, they're just outside getting in at the moment, 
But again, you could also have a really good week and go 0 2 in this league, right? It's just that's how hard this league is. Yeah, I believe Bracket Matrix has them as a 10 seed right now in the tournament. But like you said, I mean, plenty of them have them just on the outside looking in. Some of them have them as uh, one of the last teams in, and then others have them somewhere in that 10 to 11 seed mix. And I think for UC, it's still very up in the air because most of their resume is going to be decided in Big 12 action. Their, their non-conference didn't account for much. That's not going to be looked at too strongly. Yeah, Georgia, really, Georgia, Tech's, Georgia Tech's starting to help them a little bit, though. They've gotten a couple of decent scalps. Yeah, good good point. Um, but I think a lot of Cincinnati's resume is going to be figured out over the next month or so. And so these games, you know, I mean, as much as you can sit there and point to, well, they could be 4-0, I'd also argue that you probably expect them to lose that game at BYU. So if you take the, the Texas game and the BYU results, you kind of flip them because both of them were kind of unexpected. 2-2 two and two is... I don't know if it's best case scenario, but it's right about best case scenario. I think even the most optimistic people would have had this UC team down for heading into the start of Big 12 play. Yeah, I mean, we talked about the first six, right? And Oklahoma and Kansas are the last two of the of the first six. And, and I heard our friend Tony Pike on, on Cincy 1530 before the conference season started. He said, uh, I think he and Mo Egger were talking and, and he, he said, hey, I think two and four would be a great start out of these six. And I'm shaking my head like yeah that sounds about right to me I don't think you'll get any of these games on the road and can you steal a couple of the home ones okay maybe and so yeah I mean you've I think right now it's a little house money but again you got to keep stacking these 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 quad ones because um uh, especially the home ones because the road just it's going to be hard to win these games on the road I know they've got one but we're talking you're going to probably need three or four and that's just going to be really really hard yeah something that's stood out to me skinny and when we were talking about this team throughout the non-conference, we talked a lot about their offense, the potential lack of firepower that they have on this team. And you get into big 12 play here and it hasn't been one or two guys that is con- that have consistently stepped up and carried this offense, but they have gotten enough from different sources on each night to be in these games and, and win two of them. I mean, I look at the, the TCU game, you get over 20 points out of Day-Day Thomas and John Newman. Yeah. I, I don't think that's something that I expected coming into the 12 play, that those two would be capable of combining for 40 points to beat a ranked team. Uh, that's got to make Wes Miller and this fan base feel pretty good about the way the offense is starting to, to come together. Yeah, that, that was the part for me that I, I thought was they were really going to struggle in, in the conference was was getting scoring from from those guys or getting scoring in general. I thought this team would have a hard time getting out of the 60s in, in a lot of nights in this league. And lo and behold, they've they've exceeded that in a couple of games. And granted, obviously, the Baylor game was a, was a 59-point performance, but it is on the road, and Baylor can be hard to score against. And um, I, you know, I think Baylor's game last night with Kansas State was 68-64 in overtime. So, um, yeah, to me, that, that's a surprising part. And maybe that's the good part is – um, you got four or five guys that that can score on a given night for you if you're Wes Miller, and and it can be a night where maybe it isn't John Newman, but it is Dan Skillings. Maybe it isn't Day Day Thomas, and it is Jizzle James. I still don't know what you're going to get out of the post offensively. Um, it doesn't seem like very much in conference play, but I didn't expect that to take place anyway, which, again, is why I thought this team was going to be offensively challenged. Yeah, it is kind of funny because a lot of people were talking so much about Aziz Bandego and Jamil Reynolds becoming eligible and how that was the missing link for this team. And I'm not saying they didn't need those two guys because their front court is definitely better with those guys in there than having to play Odio Guama extended right. minutes. But um, th- this, from a scoring standpoint, it's really been some other names that I don't think many people expected. I mean, we talked about this after the BYU and Texas game, Skinny, how much 
fun it is to watch UC play these Big 12 games as opposed to playing American Athletic Conference teams. It, you you win at BYU by 11 unexpectedly, a surprise, upset, a convincing victory there. But since then, you had a one-point loss at home against Texas that had a crazy finish. You had a three-point loss at Baylor that had a pretty wild finish. And then you have an overtime win, 81-77 at home against TCU. Uh, from a fan standpoint, I mean, you've, you're really getting your money's worth in this major voyage into the Big 12. No, absolutely. No, no question about it. I, you know, I know you'd probably like to, to, to beat up on a two-laner in East Carolina, but it isn't nearly as much fun uh, as, as what this would be. I think you saw that probably spill over last night with the Stormy in the court. I do think that's a little much, but yeah, okay. I mean, I, I, there's excitement and there should be. Yeah, I agree. And, and it doesn't stop. Like, that's not letting up. You didn't get through the exciting portion of your schedule, and now it goes back to the yeah, no, right. dregs of the conference. It's like Oklahoma is coming to town on Saturday. They ranked 20th in Ken Palm. Then you go to a little place called Kansas. Yeah. Uh, they're pretty good, I, I hear, this year. So they'll play at Kansas next Monday. Then you get a little bit of a reprieve with UCF coming to fifth third. and you're Although UCF, although UCF popped Kansas at home. Right. Right, but I mean, just from a standpoint of brand names and Ken Palm rankings and all that stuff, I mean, it lets up a little bit. But uh, those are the you know the the the, the let up this year is a, a West team. Virginia. Well, it's West Virginia or it's UCF, but that right. UCF team at 80th and Ken Palm would have been like the best team you played last year in the American Athletic Conference, not named Houston. Right, you know, no, so right. Um, it's it's just so so different looking at the way the schedule sets up for the Bearcats, but uh, we'll switch gears here to Xavier. They beat Providence by 20, 85 to 65. And then they turn around and they beat Butler 85, 71 on Tuesday night. The Musketeers will host Georgetown on Friday at 6 30 PM. Uh, Skinny, the Xavier team, what do you make of them? They're, they're a team that seemingly at times can't get out of their own way and can't overcome themselves in these big East games. And then when they do and they decide to play well, they win convincingly. I mean, two 20-point wins and a 14-point win, those are the three Big East wins so far. But you're asking three guards to constantly make shots, and they are capable of it. Uh, but again, consistently can that take place? I think that's a big ask. Now, Trey Green giving them a little bit of a lift as a shooter, too, I think helps a little bit. It gives you maybe not a full fourth option, but at least another guy who can do some of that stuff. And the bigs, at least are rebounding a little bit too. So I think that that's helped a little bit where I thought they'd probably get their clock clean in the league and they're really not. They're, they're doing a pretty good job on the glass. Well, and that's actually a good point to bring up skinny because this Xavier front court was a disaster in non-conference and not just from a standpoint of they're not giving you enough. They can't score. They're not talented, but they were getting flat out bullied and not by Washington and Houston and Purdue, but by Delaware and Oakland as well. Like they couldn't cut it even against mid-major big men from a physicality standpoint. But all of a sudden you look up now as you get into Big East play, you look conference only statistics. They're the number one offensive rebounding team in the Big East during conference play. They're rebounding over 40% of their misses. I mean, that's something that I didn't expect from the Xavier team at all. No, and it, 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 listen, you're not getting any offense out of those guys, but if you can get some of that in extra possessions and a stick back here and a stick back there, that, that's huge. It's, again, when you've got guards primarily doing all your scoring and shooting, they're going to to miss jump shots, and you need somebody to go chase those down for you to keep the possession alive, and I think they're doing a pretty good job of that. Yeah, well, and the biggest thing for me is just not, you know, earlier in the year, it's like you'd see a forward stick his shoulder into Gitas Namiksha's chest, and Gitas would give up three feet 
You know, the guy would just back him into the paint and then score over top of them. All of a sudden, that's not happening anymore. They're not getting pushed around. And I think that toughness and the physicality that they've added over the last month plus of the season, I don't know where it came from other than Sean Miller just beating it into their heads and maybe some of these foreign guys getting acquainted with the American diet, maybe adding some uh, protein or creatine, or I don't know exactly what teens they're taking, but it's getting used or or getting used to that physicality level too. Right. Yeah. I I think that's more than anything. Yeah. 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 It is interesting. I, you know, you and I cite Ken Palm a lot. It's probably our favorite metric to cite. Xavier's actually one spot ahead of UC. I think Xavier's 28th this morning. UC's 29th. And it's funny. You got to go all the way down to like, I think team number 71 to find a team with less wins than Xavier <laughs> Xavier has. I think everybody else has double-digit wins. Xavier sits at nine, um, and yet there they are at 28 in Ken Palm, which also tells you about the schedule they played. Yeah, it definitely tells you about their schedule. It also says something about the, the Xavier team in general in terms of like how they've performed in these games. You know, y- Yes, they're nine and eight, but in terms of the expectations, like against Purdue, uh, against uh, Houston, Houston they, they played well against UConn even, against Villanova. They've played well in those games. And uh, yes, you can point to the bad losses against Oakland and specifically against Delaware where they lost by multiple possessions in that game. But those two teams are still inside the top 150 of Ken Palm. So, I mean, are, are those good losses? Absolutely not. But in terms of the brand name, it looks worse than what the metrics actually would suggest because both of those teams are top 150. They're better than Georgetown. They're better than DePaul in terms of their metrics. So while it is dragging down Xavier some, it's not dragging them down as much as it it may from a, a fan standpoint when you look at there and you say, well, they lost two mid-major games at home. Uh, yeah, but it, it hasn't necessarily killed them just yet. And look, I spent a lot of the last few weeks talking about how I wouldn't be too worried about Xavier's at-large resume that they're trying to build here because they kind of played themselves out of that in the non-conference. And now a few weeks later, all of a sudden we're here and Xavier's right on the cusp of becoming a tournament team again, or at least in that that conversation. And that win over UC may help them in the end. It is definitely helping them because UC is is climbing back up the net and uh, that could get back into a, it's definitely a quad two game could get back into quad one conversation. So yeah, I think the the thing that's interesting for Xavier is uh, they're not like, they're not playing for seed lines now, but they are playing to get back in the conversation of right. being a tournament team, you know, being one of the last four in or something like that. And I, I think it's going to be hard for them to stack enough wins to to give them an impressive looking resume. But I do think they can win enough games to be in that conversation, be on the bubble and sneak into the tournament. And I think that now becomes the sort of the goal for this team. And, and there's no doubt at this point, Skinny, that they're at least playing well enough to be dangerous when it gets to Big East tournament time. Absolutely. I think that's kind of the, the, would be the be all end all goal at the moment. Yeah. One other thing that has, I've found interesting about, and you could kind of bring UC into this conversation too. Des Claude, I got a lot of questions um, doing media hits and definitely on my message board and, and saw a lot of comments from the fan base on social media following the losses against Villanova and UConn of people really being critical of Desmond Claude. And some people were talking even about how he shouldn't be playing as many minutes or they need to find someone else to replace him for next year because they won't be able to win next year if he's still a focal point of their offense. Um, I, I would just tell you, one, fans are way too tied to the results of somebody's shots 
and that being the end-all be-all for how they play. Desmond Claude has played pretty well this entire season, even though he hasn't shot it as well as you would like in each game. And Ooh, certainly the Villan- Villanova and UConn games were prime examples of him not finishing well. But I, I, would, I would still argue that Desmond Claude has been asked to take a major step forward, one that he probably wasn't quite ready to take in terms of his role. And uh, look what he did against Providence and Butler. 21 points against Providence, 26 against Butler, and was really efficient in both of those games. Yeah, I, our, our friend Chad Brendel was filling in this week on, on Cincy 360, and I heard him, I thought he made a good point about that, where he said, you know, Desmond Claude was asked to skip a step in the in the maturation process here, out of necessity, but he was asked to skip a step. He was asked to go from, you know, nice role player who gave you a, a whole lot in that role to being Colby Jones. And that's not fair. I mean, that's, that's a huge step forward. Plus, guard the other team's best player. And that's a big ask. I mean, we talked about this last week. Of, are they asking to do too much? Well, yes, but they also have to. Right. And that's the same thing with Colby, really. If you go back to his sophomore year, it was a very similar situation. That team didn't have a ton of success. And a lot of people were critical of Colby because offensively, he wasn't necessarily a go-to scorer just yet, wasn't ready to shoulder that load and, and be efficient while doing so. Desmond Claude is growing, going through some of the same growing pains. The only difference is people are comparing him to junior year Colby Jones, the Colby Jones that ended up being a professional the following right. season, and, and not remembering that Colby Jones went through some of the same growing pains that Des is going through now as a sophomore. But the other part of that conversation that I would add is, you know, Sean Miller is pretty good at his job, I think. And he sees these guys for hours and hours and hours every week in practice. And for some reason, he thinks Desmond Claude is clearly one of their best players based on the amount of minutes that he's been given, the role that he's been given, the touches he's given on the offensive end, the stuff they run for him. And yet fans are like, let's get this guy out of here. Let's quit playing. I I get it. Coaches are not above reproach. Like we can question their decisions and stuff. But when it comes to like, the, the guy who the coach thinks is the best player on the team and plays the most minutes versus the fans think he shouldn't be playing at all, I'm probably going to side with the coach more often than not in situations well, my, like that. Yeah, here would be my question. is if, if he's not filling the role he's currently filling, who is? Right. Exactly. Who's going who's gonna to step up and take those shots for this team, especially late in the shot clock, like we talked about last week, where the team is dropping off a hand grenade to him and saying, hey, can you do something with this? Because we couldn't figure it out for the last 20 seconds. You go make something happen. Right. He, he's being asked to do that a lot. And I would take this conversation and put it over on the UC side, too, about Day-Day Thomas. He's received a lot of criticism for UC fans, and a big reason for that is because Jizzle James is the freshman behind him who has had some great moments and fans want to see more of him. But it's like, you don't beat TCU last night without him. If Day Day Thomas isn't playing, playing a lot of minutes and playing with confidence, fans are way too quick to just want to completely punt on players or situations or concepts because of a loss or two. And I I think that the, the last two games by both UC and Xavier were a great, way to sort of show why that's a, a fallacy. Good point. All right. Let's switch gears here to NKU. They lost in overtime at Oakland 70 to 65, and then they beat Detroit Mercy 81 to 76 this weekend. Who doesn't uh, they, beat Detroit Mercy? Well, everyone so far this season, although NKU had some trouble with them. That was yes, a, a close game. The Norse will host Milwaukee on Thursday and then Green Bay on Saturday at 6 30 PM. Um, Skinny, this NKU team, they're still trying to find their way without Sam Vinson, but man, they just keep playing close game after close game right now. I, I don't know 
if the results are what everyone wants, but Darren Horn and his staff are cer- certainly learning a lot about their team without Sam Vincent. Well, and they're persevering. I mean, I, again, I know you know Detroit is literally not, for those that don't know, they literally have not won a game this season. They're owing whatever, I think 18 now or 17, yeah. whatever the heck it is. It's, it's a disaster. Um, and, you know, they pushed NKU to the brink, had it, had it tied in the second half at times, and um, looked like NKU was in trouble being that first victim. But they did find a way to persevere, and I just think that makes this going to make this team better as it rolls through conference play and the, the league right now is so daggone jumbled rick between how many ever teams have two losses and how many teams have three losses that literally within a week you could go from second in the league to seventh and you can go from seventh to second yeah i mean it was you had like three or four teams tied we now they're a little bit offset because some teams have played another game since then but you've got oakland and green bay both tied at six and two then you have youngstown state milwaukee at five and two and four and two so those are all the teams with two losses that's four teams right there and then you have another three teams at four and three that's Wright state purdue fort Wayne, and nku and then bringing up the rear of these teams that uh that are kind of in this top group because robert morris iup IUPUI and Detroit Mercy are all towards the bottom here with a little bit of separation in between. But the top eight teams, the final of those is Cleveland State sitting at four and four. And Darren Horn and I talked about it last night on the the NKU coaches show at Dudlow. Cleveland State four and four sitting in eighth place right now, in my opinion, is every bit as capable of winning the conference regular season as Oakland and Green Bay, which are both sitting in first tied at six, six and two. So, I mean, that just gives you an idea of the type of parity that exists in the conference this year. Yeah, and, and to your point, though, to the point we just made, I mean, you got Green Bay, you're playing them. I mean, you got a chance to hand them their third loss, and you still sit at three losses potentially. This this has got a lot of shaking out to do for those those top handful of seeds in the conference tournament. Um, you know, usually it feels like there's some separation in, in the horizon between maybe the top three, maybe four, and then there's a middle tier, and then there's always clearly a lower tier. There's clearly a lower tier this year, as you as you mentioned, but. Um, it, it is literally a one through eight tier that could shake itself up within a two week span of, you know, just literally pulling names out of a hat going, oh, that team's now seven and three. Oh, wait a minute. That team's suddenly six and four. How did that happen? Well, one week can change it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when I say that, you know, about Cleveland State, I'm not saying like, oh, Cleveland State's decent. They have a chance. No, like Cleveland Would State you- very well may be better than the two teams that are tied for first right now. That wouldn't surprise me at all. So the type of parity we're talking about is legitimately one through eight are all very capable of winning the conference. And we knew coming into this year that there was going to be a lot of parity because there were five different teams that received a first place vote in the preseason poll. So uh, this isn't completely unsurprising, but it has definitely lived up to the expectations. One other point I would make about NKU as they try to go forward and navigate the league without Sam Vincent, a guy to keep an eye on, Forward LJ Wells. He's a sophomore, about six foot seven, six eight, two hundred and ten pounds. Uh, he has scored fourteen points, had fourteen points, fifteen rebounds against Oakland in the loss in overtime. Came back, and it was funny because Darren Horn kind of told us before the game against Detroit Mercy, as uh, you know, Jim was doing, Jim Kelch was doing his interview with Darren, saying, "Well, LJ Wells really stepped up," and Darren was like, "Yeah, but we told him we lost." Like. The 14 and 15 is great, but it wasn't enough to get us a win. We need more out of him. And sure enough, the kid steps up. He scores 20 points, was 9 of 13 from the field against Detroit Mercy. Only had five rebounds in that game. But from an offensive standpoint, uh, just had a a different mindset in terms of the way he was attacking the rim. And now all of a sudden you start looking at this NKU team and, okay, you still got Marquez Work doing his thing, scoring over 20 points a game in conference play. And Trey Robinson is still an experienced player. He seems to be playing a bit more consistently over the last few if you could get LJ Wells 
going to, I mean, with his talent level, he's the type of guy that's capable of doing this on a more consistent basis, scoring in double figures. I think if you can get him averaging, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of even maybe not 15 to 20, but even 10 to 15 consistently and rebounding well, that may help make up a lot of the offensive firepower that you're missing without Sam Vincent. Yeah, the 10 to 15 for sure. You've mentioned you, you do lose Sam Vincent's IQ on the defensive end and his, obviously his hands and his ability to steal steal balls as well on the defensive end, so you do lose that. But, yeah, you, you can make up for the offensive portion of it. We mentioned LJ last week. I, I said I got a friend of mine who's a, a NKU season ticket holder, and he couldn't remember his name. He just remembered this guy that, that played well the night he was there. He's like, well, maybe he can help. And you know, I went to the roster. I said, him? He goes, yeah, him. And it was LJ Wells, and, and he's certainly with getting the – minutes he's getting he's providing a, a nice offensive spark yeah i thought that was funny you brought him up on the last show and then the next two games he goes for 14 and 15 and 20 i mean just you know really really playing well all of a sudden so um we'll continue to keep an eye on him and finally kentucky skinny they lost in overtime at texas a&m 97 to 92 the wildcats will host mississippi state on wednesday night and then georgia on saturday at 6 p.m um, another loss for the Wildcats and this one, especially being an overtime loss on the road, isn't the end of the world, but skinny, we've talked about the defense for this UK team and the concern that it is to me, what really stood out about this loss was it didn't seem like they could slow down Taylor or Radford, the two guards for the Aggies at all. They combined for 59 points. Yeah, Taylor actually went for 41 last night. A&M lost a, a road game. I can't remember who it was to, uh, but Taylor went for 41 in, the, in that game. So he's kind of on a, on a heater at the moment. But, yeah, I mean, they couldn't stop and get to the basket. They, they couldn't get out on three-point shooters. Um, they had a hard time with the high ball screen. Um, I thought Onyenso gave them some rim protection, and that's what your hope is moving forward. But Donovan Bradshaw got in foul trouble, so your other seven-footer was out of the game for some stretches of play. And they just – it's going to sound odd because they scored 90 in a grand. They got to an overtime to get it. They just didn't seem to get in a great rhythm on offense either, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, the, they, they weren't in a great rhythm, but they did shoot the ball really well. And we were kind of waiting for that game where they didn't make shots from the outside. And it's like, OK, can you actually be gritty and tough and win one when the shots aren't going in and you're on the road? But they were 15 for 39 from three point range in this game. So they kept shooting a ton of threes. They made a lot of them, made 15 of them. Uh, they, they the, the other part I, I didn't know that they would lose a game when they shot so well. I, no, I, I that's, a, that's a fair point. The other part though that was really just is is how many offensive rebounds they give up. They give up a ton of offensive rebounds, and for a team that's so good and and it's been multiple TV analysts and don't need them to tell you what you see with your own eyes, but they've made points of just how great this team is in transition, and they are. I mean, they get it and go, and they're down the floor like that. Well, it's hard to get down the floor like that if you don't rebound the basketball, and that's something that's got to got to improve, and it, it should. I mean, Mitchell's a big guy. You're always going to have a seven-footer on the floor. Um, you got athletic guards. Reed Shepard's a, a big guard, if you will. But for whatever reason, they just don't rebound the wall, ball consistently well enough, and that's a bad combination when you also, against good offensive teams, give up too many things going to the bucket um, or kick out threes. Yeah, because it's like if you have issues guarding – the, the opponent's best players, which Kentucky has shown to to have that problem at times, and you can't get off uh, a defensive rebound to finish off a stop, you can really put yourself in a world of hurt when those other teams are making a run on you because it just yep. feels like there's no way to to get out of that situation if you can't finish off the stop with a rebound. And um, that definitely compounded on the Wildcats in this game. I guess the other question I would have, Skinny, is, is there some concern 
And obviously, Kentucky has been through this a billion different times with the young rosters that they've ran out there over the last decade plus. But is there a concern that this group just isn't ready to take everybody else's best shot right now? I don't know. That's a great, good question. I thought they took a great shot from Florida and responded. Um, I thought they responded in this game. And they're down, you know, seven or eight late. Rob Dillingham comes in and goes bang, bang, bang from three, three straight trips to eventually get that thing to a tie. Um, you know, the the final offensive possession, not counting the Reed Shepard free throws that made made the, the, the tie the score and forced the overtime, really kind of the final offensive possession before that was a, was a disaster because of the turnover. But, you know, for the most part, I thought they did that and they had a chance with the ball to take a lead late and, and then didn't, but then also responded by forcing the, the overtime. And to me, I, I just wondered if once, once they got to that overtime, I was like, oh, okay, we're good now. And maybe there's a slight letdown and all of a sudden you look up and you're down six and, and now you can't score all of a sudden. Yeah. All right, Skinny, any other final thoughts on the college basketball landscape, Kentucky, anything we talked about there? No, it just, I, I swear this, this year is, maybe we say this too often, but this seems like just a crazy fun year because there's just, you know, it looked like BYU was dead in the water in the Big 12, right? Loser first couple games. Suddenly they've responded with some good wins. I mean, you know, Baylor goes to Kansas State, which hasn't played the way I think some people thought, and Kansas State gets a win. It, it's any given night right now, man. It really and truly is, and that, that makes it fun. I, I think, honestly, the team that's starting to separate itself to me a little bit is UConn, but somebody, somebody's going to get them in the league at home. They're, they're going to get them, and then we're going to question UConn, right? Yeah, and I mean, uh, aside from UConn in the Big East, it's – crazy too i mean it's it's hard to know what's coming from night to night and that's certainly been the case in the big 12 already we talked about the silliness in the horizon league i mean th- for the local teams right now that the conference action couldn't be any more fun yeah i mean even the sec I, I can't imagine a team in the sec that wins it has fewer than four losses yeah good point all right let's move on to the Bengals here skinny according to nfl.com reporter ian rapaport Bengals offensive coordinator Brian Callahan will interview for the head coaching vacancies with the Tennessee Titans, the Los Angeles Chargers, and the Carolina Panthers and Atlanta Falcons at some point. How big of a deal would it be for the Bengals if they lost Brian Callahan, a guy who notably, we've talked about it many times, isn't even the one who calls the plays for the Bengals? Uh, I think Brian's important. Brian does a lot of red zone stuff. Um, He seems like he has a big voice with players that players trust. Um, he's obviously a part of the game plan processes, which, which is every bit as important as the guy who's calling the plays on a Sunday. He's a suggester, too. So I'm sure he has some input on, on some of those things, too. And I'm going to say all those things. And, and I really like Brian, too. But they do have, in my opinion, a, a coordinator in the waiting who might get a coordinator job himself this offseason and quarterbacks coach Dan Pitcher. So I, I say this and I don't mean this as a shot at Brian because I really do like Brian. I think Brian provides a ton of value to this football team. Um, but I don't think it would be because I think they feel like they've got a guy who really is a coordinator in the waiting and Dan Pitcher. And like I said, if, if Dan, if Brian doesn't leave and stays in the role he's in, I could certainly see Dan looking elsewhere if an offer comes along to, to be an offensive coordinator. They're paying him well to be a quarterback's coach, but I can see that. Do you get the sense that these interviews are teams legitimately interested in Brian Callahan? Do you feel like they're doing due diligence because they can't just interview one guy and hire him they need multiple names in the mix or I mean it just doesn't seem like his name had been thrown around a lot or at least very seriously prior to these interviews popping up yeah you know the funny part is and and I and I I I think I don't I don't know why this always happens I guess I do but it doesn't make sense you know you got the coaching tree 
Um, and, and some of the coaching trees don't shake out very well because, quite frankly, those guys probably aren't all that great of coaches. Maybe the head coach was great. The roster was great. The thing is, you know, Brian was a hot name last year. Um, he did interview twice with, with Indianapolis. The Colts ended up going with uh, um, the, the, with Shane Steichen, the offensive coordinator from Philadelphia instead. But he got a couple of interviews there, so it sounds like they were, they were uh, impressed with him, and, and certainly he was a, a valuable candidate for them. You know, if he was a hot name last year, his name should probably still be hot this year if you believe in him. It shouldn't be because his name was hot because the Bengals went to a Super Bowl and an AFC championship game, and suddenly because they only went 9-8 didn't make the playoffs. Either he's a good coach or not. And that's the funny part to me is this guy coming from the Bill Walsh tree. Why does he suck? Because maybe he wasn't very good, Paul Hackett. Um, you know, Matt Patricia and, and, and Josh McDaniels and guys from the Bill Bel- Charlie Weiss, guys from the Bill Belichick, maybe they weren't very good. Maybe they were good because they had Tom Brady as a quarterback. What about Luana Rumo, Skinny? Because he's in a situation where the Bengals' defense really was an issue this year, and, and he had been looked at pretty favorably the last few seasons, and his name had been brought up about potentially being a head coach somewhere else. You haven't heard it as much no. this offseason, and, and kind of understandably so, given what happened with the, the team. But to the point that you just made, how how much of a as a coach did he really change from last year to this year? What are your thoughts on that, and, and do you think he will get any looks this year? I think he will still get a look because there's so many openings, and there's a possibility of, of maybe more, right? Um, you know, We don't know what's going to happen in Dallas at this point, so maybe there's another opening that, that, that takes place, and that shuffles the deck. You know, the narrative of Dan Quinn, the defensive coordinator of the Cowboys, um, former head coach, took a team to a Super Bowl as a head coach, and his defense was was superb throughout the regular season. And then they get torched in the playoffs, and I literally heard the next day, well, I wonder if Dan Quinn's still a hot name. Well, is one game really make all that difference for the guy? Come on now. Yeah. And that's where I kind of feel with Lou. I think the only, the only part for Lou is he is older. He is a defensive coach. This league is turning more and more to offensive-minded coaches, it looks like, as head coaches. And I think that's maybe the detriment for him, unfortunately. It's going to be interesting to see if that changes the level of talent you have coaching the defensive side of the ball going forward. You know, in other words, are there going to be the best coaches saying, no, I'm not coaching defense. The path to being a head coach is staying on the offense side of the ball, so I'm going to stay over there. Yeah, philosophies will change. They always do. What's new is old. What's old is new. Yeah, well, uh, well, another question I had watching the playoffs over the last weekend, Skinny, and it was a dog awful wild card round of, of playoff games. We only had one decent game the whole time. That was the the Chiefs and Dolphins. Um, does Pittsburgh and Cleveland flopping take away from the narrative of how good the AFC North was this year? We always do this with the with March Madness, right? Where we say like, oh, the the Big East got seven teams in, but only one or two of them advanced. So, see, the Big East wasn't actually as good as. We said it was all year. Uh, is that the same thing in the NFL? Like, are, are we going to do that or how's that? Yeah, work? I, I'm going to say no, because both those teams had to go on the road. Um, and I do think the whole look, the Joe Flacco story was a cool one. Is it, it was evolving at the end of the season. But at some point, Joe Flacco was going to become 39 year old Joe Flacco. And you saw that in that in that playoff game. And I don't think I think Pittsburgh could go to Buffalo 20 times. Snowstorm knows that they needed to play in a snowstorm, to be quite frank, to, to yeah. muddy and ugly that game up. I just don't think they're going to beat Buffalo at Buffalo in that environment. And I think that's what it came down to is two with teams Mason Rudolph. going to root. Yeah. And then Mason Rudolph is, as, as the quarterback. I will say this as much as I said last week that. I think you asked the question of the Bengals getting back to the playoffs. And, and if I would bet on it and I said, I don't think I would bet on it. Does it mean I, that, that they can't or won't? Um, but watching those two teams, 
Um, I don't know if the Browns are better with Deshaun Watson. And obviously Pittsburgh still is going to have issues at the quarterback position. So, you know, maybe those don't get ironed out for either one of those teams and the Bengals can take advantage of that next year and should actually. I heard Mo Egger and Paul Daner talking, I think it was on Tuesday about uh, that's when Paul's normally on, yes. Yeah, about this topic. Um they brought up the idea that it being built to win the AFC North, like we heard that a lot about the Bengals, right? That they play sort of a different style from Pittsburgh, yeah, Cleveland, yeah, and Baltimore. Yeah, and that maybe they're not that grinded out, pound you up the middle, not tough enough to beat those teams. And obviously that showed up with their record against those teams this year. But Paul and Mo were making the point that maybe being built to win the AFC North isn't ideal when you get into the playoffs because you look around and one, the AFC North teams didn't perform well, but two, the teams that are performing well and are playing well look a whole lot more like the style of team that the Bengals are that, that can drop back and throw the ball a bunch and, and have the receivers and playmakers. Where do you come on, come out on that? Because I thought that was an interesting take that basically it's, it's great to win those AFC North games, but being built to win the AFC North quote unquote, isn't maybe ideal. Yeah, no, I, I think Zach Taylor wanted to build this team differently for that very reason of, you're, you know, you could try to out north the North teams, but why not try to be different to, to win the Super Bowl? And, and I know he has said, and this is going to kind of be contradictory, he's talked about he feels like the best path to winning a Super Bowl is winning the AFC North. I understand his point there. That's not that's not to say he's building his team to beat AFC North teams at their own game. And I think the proof was in the last couple of years. This year, maybe not so much, but – Again, can we go to the Pittsburgh games? And you asked me this question last week, and I said I don't know if they would have. But, you know, could Joe Burrow have made a difference in, in those games? Yeah, he could have made a difference. I don't know if he'd gotten you 35 points to win 35-34 at Pittsburgh, which they would have needed. But sure, and that's a fair point. A, a physically compromised Joe Burrow in the opening game against Cleveland didn't help. A, a somewhat physically compromised Joe Burrow in game two against Baltimore didn't help. So let's see a fully healthy Joe Burrow go through these teams again because he's done it. Yeah. Uh, any other thoughts here on the, the playoffs or anything in the NFL, Skinny? No, I mean, I, the, the scene in Detroit was pretty cool. I mean, they if, if you're a Bengals fan and you can recall, because I've never heard a roar like I heard when they sealed the Raiders win um, in 2021, because even though, again, that team went to the Super Bowl and that was the magic of that season, it was a big deal to end the playoff drought, right? The playoff win drought. And I think everybody felt that. I think that was that collective roar that night. And I think you saw that in Detroit of, okay, uh, and now – you, you've got another home game, and hell, Detroit can look up and they're in the NFC Championship game very easily. And uh, they well, have a chance to do what the Bengals did. Correct, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, as amazing as it was to make that run to the Super Bowl and how cool all that was, it got to a point, at least from my perspective as a Bengals fan, I don't know how many others felt this way, but there got it almost got to a point where it was surreal and like it was it was too good to be true. I would say the the win over the Raiders and that celebration was even bigger than the one to get to the Super Bowl because it was just like that roar. roar And, and, you know, you, you've been in that press box, Rick, you can hear some of the crowd noise. You can't hear the full effect of it. You could hear the effect of that Jermaine Pratt interception and what that meant to seal that win. Yeah. I, 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 honestly, from a fan's perspective in Cincinnati, if you're around my age, you know, mid thirties, I can't think of too many celebrations that were better than that one. 
for, for sports around here. So I completely get it with Detroit. And I, I hope they enjoy this one. I hope it keeps going for them because there's nothing like that run, especially when you've had nothing but futility for most of your life. So hopefully they enjoy it. I'm really looking forward to the uh, to that Houston game this week, though. Yeah, I am too. I think I think it's gonna be interesting. They played each other in the opener, Houston and Baltimore, and, and CJ Stroud's first career start. It did not go well. It looked like Houston was on a path after that game of all right, got a rookie quarterback, gonna be growing pains, you know, four and thirteen, five and twelve is probably where they're heading. Um and it certainly looked like that after week one. But uh yeah, I think, you know, now he's got whatever, 15 starts under his belt because he missed a couple due to injury. And um, the way he has played uh, in, in most of his starts after that opener, um, I, I'm going to guess he's looking his chops wanting a, a chance at, at redemption there. Yeah, C.J. Stroud was very good to us when we were betting college football games a, a year ago, and uh, I hope he continues his good success in the NFL. All right, let's talk about the Reds a little bit, Skinny. They added... Uh, Cincinnati native Brett Suter to their bullpen. The Molar grad went four and three with a 338 ERA and 69.1 innings for the Colorado Rockies last season. Um, I'll, I'll get your thoughts on that first of all, but then I want to talk to you a little bit about something an analyst wrote about the Reds offseason. But uh, to me, the Suter edition kind of feels like uh, what the Reds have been doing here, just really building up some depth in terms of their arms. Yeah, I mean, I saw a projected rotation the other day that has Andrew Abbott in the minors, and that's a possibility. And again, Suter doesn't affect that. Suter's a bullpen arm, to your point, but right. it is a left-handed bullpen arm. Um, you know, I, I think they need some balance in that bullpen. This gives them a little bit more. And yeah, they've stockpiled depth to where, again, you're going to have a couple of guys that are going to be starting the season in Louisville where you're going to look and go, really? That guy? In the minors? Seriously? Okay. And that, that should tell you that the roster's better. Yeah, so... Meanwhile, there's this ESPN analyst, David Schoenfield, who wrote about each team's off seasons and he gave his thoughts on the Reds. He said, quote, even setting aside Montaz's health risks, the Reds offseason has just been confusing. They're spending money, which is a rare concept, but they've now committed to $53 million in 2024 salaries for free agents Montas, Nick Martinez, Jamer Candelario and Emilio Pagan. I get that it might be difficult to attract star players to Cincinnati, but you can't help but wonder if the team could have spent some of that $53 million on at least one star. Skinny, your thoughts on that take by David Schoenfield? Well, I would say they, they, they made an attempt at that with Sonny Gray, right? And, and apparently it got to be a little too rich for their blood, and that's fine. At some point, you put, you, know, you put your foot down and go, that we can't go any higher, we're not going any higher. But They've also improved their club. Again, some of it is health-related. Montas is clearly health-related. He says he feels great. That's all well and good in January to say those things, and I hope he is. And if he is, he could certainly be a nice addition to this rotation. Is it a star addition? Probably not, but is it better than, than rolling out um, the, the Luis Cesses and the Luke Weavers and the some of the hacks they rolled out last year where you literally looked up and go, they got no chance tonight. Um, and again, your bullpen needed some other depth, and you've added it with – Suter and Pagan Martinez, who could also if in an emergency when, you know, things get down to a weird spot and he's healthy can get you a, a five inning start here and there. Um, I, I think, you know, Candelario gives you a, a nice uh, versatile piece. I don't think there's anything wrong with any of those things because you're counting on, and maybe this is wrong in there. You're counting on these young guys who are highly thought of prospects who came up and performed well some, you know, were bright stars that, that burned out a little bit like Ellie De La Cruz, but he still is highly thought of. You're banking on those guys in the near future becoming stars. And I understand that. I would, too. Yeah, I think that's the, the point that 
Schoenfield's missing here is the stars are coming from the guys that are already on the roster blossoming. Now, we don't know exactly who those are going to be necessarily just yet. We think we know, but there are, you know, four, five, six different names that could be the next big star in Major League Baseball on the Reds roster right now. And I don't think we'd be all that surprised. No, agreed. And so I think that's what you're banking on more than anything in terms of hitting the home run with one of those star talents. But as for how they're spending this money, I would argue that one, this team didn't necessarily need that one guy, that, that that one piece in the middle of their lineup or something, that that wasn't what was separating them from the top teams in Major League Baseball. So adding a guy like a Mike Moustakis, one, hasn't worked out for the Reds. We've no. already seen that. Yes. You make a big investment. You think you're getting that big middle of the lineup piece. And you swallowed that money. And it doesn't work out at all, and it just sets you back. So one, I think it's smart not to necessarily do that again. Two, I don't think that's what they needed. The the only argument I could listen to is that, well, maybe that money would be better spent on one ace-type pitcher at the top of the rotation to pair and with some that. Exactly. And, and to your point, I think they swung and missed on that. They just weren't able to get that ace-type guy that was going to be a difference maker. So what do you do? You get a bunch of pieces, not a bunch, but you get a few different Come, pieces yeah. that might be able to help you. And maybe they won't work out. Maybe two of them won't work out, but maybe one of them has a really nice year for you and is the extra arm that you needed that you didn't have last, last year to, to take some of the pressure off the back end of the bullpen or, or what have you. So, I mean, I, I can get where he's coming from with that point. I just think it doesn't really understand it lacks understanding of where the Reds were at going into this offseason and how they're building this roster right now. And you're seeing some prices for some of these pitchers that that have had some issues health-wise, performance-wise, through the roof. And it's almost like, okay, if that's what you as Team A or Team B want to spend your money, good for you. I don't think it's prudent for this franchise to do that. I mean, you're not going to go sign Blake Snell either. So, again, you swung and missed the guy you tried to get, and I'm okay with the with the backup plan. And Again, have you is, have you improved your roster? Have you knocked three or four guys off the roster that shouldn't be here and added three or four guys who have established themselves as big league players who are capable performers? Maybe not superstar performers, but capable performers. The answer to that is yes. Well, and the other thing, Skinny, is the Reds haven't tied up a bunch of long-term money Correct. with these additions that they've made. They've made additions to incrementally get better for now but with the eye on locking up their talented young guys for the future, not getting tied to a long-term contract for seven or eight years. Or, or not throwing silly money at guys who aren't capable. Not, not throwing money at Tommy Pham. And, and who the hell was it last year they signed that they ended up having to swallow? I'm drawing a complete blank. Yeah, I don't even remember who we're talking about now. Oh, Will Myers. Will Myers. Oh, yeah, Will Myers. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. there's been a there's been a handful of them over the last few years that, that you can kind of point to. And um I just, yeah, I, I just don't think that was the way for this team to go. Agreed. So, all right, let's get into some Ask Skinny. Anything. Absolutely. Skinny, never been a fan of booing college players, but as NIL continues to grow, and now in many cases we have fans paying the players, does college sports get to a point where the fans feel entitled to boo for poor performance if it's effectively their money that got a player to a school? If a school with is. a collective pays for a Nigel Pack, should those fans expect a baseline performance? Yeah, I, I think you are going to get to that that part. I, I'm kind of with it. Um, I'm not a big boo guy either anyway, but um, yeah, I, I could see it getting to that point. A lot of times, if you do hear boos at college games, it's because of a decision a coach made, or it's mostly directed at the coach. But I can see it directed at players in, in, as we move along with this. Be, you know, no question about it. You are technically now, right or wrong, you are a professional, my man. 
Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that part of it. I think the NIL stuff and the transfer portal stuff has changed how we, we will talk about what's going on and, and how sensitive we need to be when talking about these guys because most of them are earning more money than we are in terms of their NIL deal when we're talking about high major student athletes now. And and they're certainly earning more money than you know the students that they're going to class with and a lot of people that are buying tickets to get into their game. So uh, I get that side of it. I would also argue that I think we're already there. Like I, fans have stopped, fans lost that decorum a long time ago. I don't think they're any longer just booing coaches and stuff like that. I think they've been booing players at college games for years now. I've seen it at Xavier. Um, so I, I, well, and I you see the vitriol all the times on message boards, right? Right. A hundred percent on, on social media. It's that bad. So I think it's only going to continue to get worse. I don't, I don't really understand the idea that, um, you're now entitled to like boo guys, whereas you weren't before. I don't think that's really changed, but I, I think it's going to continue to happen because that, that line of fan decorum just continues to be lower and lower and lower in terms of what, what they're willing to do. No question. Uh, did skinny ever have a half baked business idea that he thought about starting? Uh, my buddy, Tom Gamble and I, and another guy started a, a small business where we were doing high school programs um, we had three schools and the effort that we put into it for the minimal amount of money that we made on it um, was excruciating. We dry, tried this when we were working at the post in the early 1990s. We're proud of the product. I still have a couple of them in my in my collection of stuff. But, yeah, we thought, oh, man, this is going to be we, we can do this. We can. And it was just the, the effort to do it was exhaustive. It got to the point where I was laying out our final program. We, we had an ad for um, a congressman. They wouldn't, they, 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 they just couldn't send me the ad. There was no, this wasn't over the internet back then. I literally had to take a business card and picture of this cat, plug it in. And to this day, it's the worst looking ad you will ever see in any kind of professional product in your lifetime. So was this uh, programs like before a game that would be handed out at a, no, a season. football game? The, the, no, the, the season, season program, okay. season programs for high schools. Okay. And so it just had like preview information about the team, the roster, yes. all that type of stuff. Correct. Okay. Correct. And you were getting local businesses to sponsor the ads in there and, and sell that it. That is correct. Way. That okay. is correct. All right. I mean, yeah, it's not too far off from the the business I started with NKI fan when I was doing that. Just uh, not programs, but same type of concept there. So it is. Uh, that's a tough route to go. That's for sure. Is that the only half baked business that you thought about? Yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not, my, most of my side hustle comes off of broadcasting or coaching or whatever. So, yeah, I, I, I've got enough, I've had enough side hustles doing those things over my, my lifetime that I really haven't thought of business ideas. I'm not a great businessman. That, that's yeah. another reason why. You're, and you're still doing those side hustles. That oh, yeah. Not stopped, oh, so. yeah. Correct. Uh, does Skinny ask guests to remove their shoes at his house? No, but I did have a friend of mine that when I went into his house, I always had to, I, I would always have to remove shoes. In fact, it's on your street, as a matter of fact. Where My that parents. House is. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, there's, there's, a, there's some people that, that have lived there for, for many years now that I actually went to high school with his brother. So um, it's kind of stayed in the family. But yes, we would have to take off shoes in, in their house. But no, not in, not in mine. Is that just a, like, keeping the carpets fresh deal? Yeah, they had, white car- they had white carpeting too. So I, I, I understood some of that. Okay. I never really got that when people were into the take your shoes off right away. Was it just, is it, it's just about the carpets? Is that yeah, all that yeah, was? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, is it okay to put trash in your neighbor's bin when yours is full? No, no. I mean, if it, is it like, you know, you you took out the trash and it is full and you're like, Oh, I got, you know, these 
two envelopes or these three cups that were left by Dixie cups were left by. All right, you maybe walk out and dump it in there. That's fine, but not like a full load. No. Yeah, that's that's an insane move. I mean, if I ever saw a neighbor bringing over a garbage bag into my garbage can, I'd be like, first of all, what the hell are you doing? Yeah, in our, our street where we are, um, most of us have the pickup on Monday, but we have a handful of others in the neighborhood that have a different collection service. So there's a handful of them that are our Friday collections. So not everybody. In fact, one of my next door neighbors is actually a Friday. We're a Monday uh, across the street from us is a Friday. Caddy Corner's a Monday. So I'd have to literally like walk down the street, <laughs> not like go a house. I have to go like two or three houses down. I'm not carrying garbage that far, man. Yeah, that'd be a little. Yeah, I mean, I'd- my my bin doesn't get very full. I, it's usually, you know, probably a bag of garbage and then maybe a, a few other items in it. We recycle a lot of stuff and we have a recycling bin that's almost as big as our garbage can. So it's, it's, it's pretty evened out. I don't think this is actually that likely to happen. Like, I don't see many people being like, oh, I've got a, I've got too much garbage this week. I'm going to go dump it in my neighbors. I feel like they just tie up a bag and lay it next to their can. Yeah. Um, well, I, do that with, I do that when I do like yard work and stuff. If I, if I can't fit it in the can, I just lay the, the, the bag next to it and they take it. Yeah, it happens all the time. I've piled up all types of stuff next to my can. But the the move I've seen done a decent amount in our neighborhood that I'm always I'm I'm scared to do it myself, but I see a lot of other people doing this. Stealing and stuff? I, no, I just don't know what the uh the protocol is on walking the dog, dog takes a dump, and you've got to now got to carry that bag the whole time. Is it okay like if if it's garbage day or the day after and people still have their cans out, is it okay to dump your baggie in your neighbor's trash bin like if you're on okay? you know, a street away or something i'd say the answer is it okay probably not but would i be okay with it i think i would actually yeah i'm obviously fine doing it because we have a dog so it's not, it's not changing i'm dumping mine in there so it's not like i care if someone else does it at right. my house um but i would be I'd, i'm not doing that to other people's just because i they might not put dog crap in their garbage and fair i don't enough. know i don't want to introduce that to theirs fair enough you know all right that's all we got All right. All good. Appreciate it as always. Uh, We will be back next week with some more college basketball conversation. We'll be down to the AFC and NFC championship games to talk about as well and much, much more. Join us next week. For Rick Roaring, I'm Richard Skinner. This has been the Skinny Podcast, the weekly phone free edition presented by Blake Attorney Mason.